What is up? I am Zach, your host of the Auxoro podcast, where music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, and other interesting human beings dive deep into the story beyond the surface. We are a completely independent platform, and there are a few ways in which you can support this podcast. Number one, you can subscribe, leave a review, and rate us on the iTunes store. This helps us appear higher in searches, which means more people will find out about these conversations. Number two, you can tell a friend, write a blog post, and tag us on social media. I promise we will get back to you. And number three, you can slide us some dollar bills with the support link in the description of this podcast. All production, equipment, and travel expenses are paid out of pocket, and a few bucks does go a long way. This episode is brought to you by The Ox. The Ox is an email newsletter bringing you the five coolest things that we discover each week at Oxoro. Just last week, we explored what microdosing is on psychedelics, the pitfalls of building a billion-dollar company, and Patrick Dempsey's thoughts on meditation. If you're ready to take your cool to the next level, at least our version of cool, you can subscribe to The Ox by clicking the link in the description of this podcast or by visiting auxoro.com slash The Ox. That's A-U-X. This time, we sat down with Andrew Meager and Cody Sabanin, the brains behind Moogatoons.com. Moogatoons is a community of tastemakers from around the country who come together to share the best music. No bots, no algorithms, no shitty music. It's human music curation from people you can trust. As an avid Spotify junkie, I have had my heart ripped out by mismanaged playlists. So often, money, pressure from labels, and other factors come into play for getting the top spots on Spotify and Apple Music playlists. Moogatoons is the cure for shitty music curation. Playlist creators who Moogatoons refers to as tastemakers are vetted individually before being allowed to create playlists on the platform. From there, real humans vote on the best songs and playlists, which you can see out in the open on Moogatoons.com. No shady algorithms, just human-driven jams. I've been bumping Moogatoons playlists for the past month since I met Cody and Drew at a rooftop party that Moogatoons was sponsoring in Brooklyn. I can attest that these playlists are miles beyond some of what the other major players have to offer. To put it simply, I'm addicted. On this episode, we discuss how Moogatoons works as a platform, the beginnings of Drew and Cody's interest in music, the conversations that sparked Moogatoons in a college dorm room, and their upcoming 20-city block party tour. Without further ado, here's our wide-ranging conversation with Drew and Cody of Moogatoons. A good place to start, I think, would be what is Moogatoons and how does Moogatoons work? If you were going to describe it to someone who is not familiar with the platform or maybe not even familiar with, with streaming, they're still stuck on the, the iPod classic back in 2008. How would you describe Moogatoons and what you want it to do and, and how it works with, with listeners? Sure. So if you're stuck on the iPod Mini in 2008. Music exists now on a few major streaming platforms, mostly Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, Apple Music. 
And what our platform does is it curates that music so that fans have an easier way to discover the best new songs that are coming out. And how it works is we enlist a community of, we call them tastemakers. They're basically just music aficionados and they curate the best music they're finding. And our platform gives them a place to do so where otherwise there isn't a seamless way to do that. So you can essentially vet tastemakers, which are people that come onto the platform and, and create playlists. They're people that you have approved beforehand. Exactly. So there's an application process. Um, it's pretty basic. They send us sort of a five song playlist of music that they would post if they were a tastemaker. Like you said, we vet all of them. And then if they're approved, then they're good to go posting. We do recruit some kids sometimes. If we see, find somebody on SoundCloud or Spotify who we really like what they're reposting, we'll like hit them up and invite them. But you'll snag the competition before they get sucked up. Exactly. I mean, it makes sense if you see someone making fire playlists and they're on SoundCloud or, or Spotify, some other platform, and you want them to be on Moogatunes, there's it doesn't seem like there's a downside to to have both. For for that person who's making the playlist, they're getting more exposure and they're having their name attached to the playlist as well in both places. Exactly. It makes them almost like a micro influencer on our platform, gives them a place to save the stuff they're posting, almost builds like a little resume of music expertise. So before we get into the background of some of the early conversations around Moogatunes, I just wanted for, for people that may not be looking at the platform at the, at the moment or haven't used it before, does this run through Spotify? I assume it runs through Spotify because it asks you to log in to your premium account when you're on the site? How, how is it tracking streams and what is it pulling the songs from? So the songs come from Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. And so there's all three of those types of content on the platform. So the idea being that we are the only place where you can get the best music from all three. If you're a little bit familiar, there is different libraries on all three. SoundCloud and YouTube really have everything. And then Spotify is more major label kind of like less random people uploading sounds. So our goal was to give people access to all of it. I like that. There's so many songs that I save on Spotify or save on SoundCloud, especially remixes or people that don't have accounts on Spotify that aren't Spotify artists. And I have to always go back and forth between Spotify, SoundCloud, even some of the the bigger playlist curators that I follow on YouTube. So I, so I like how all three are integrated and you don't really have to go back and forth. Exactly. I think that's a big piece of it too. And a big component is that, you know, like for me, for example, I'm a big SoundCloud guy. I love finding underground EDM remixes, songs that you typically don't find on Spotify or you don't find on Apple music. And so, you know, when I'm trying to send them to my friends and they're like, Oh, I don't even have the SoundCloud app or like, I don't go on SoundCloud. It just makes it a universal place where, it doesn't matter which platform you're pulling from. It's just one spot where we can really make sure that we have the best music. Um, and I, there's no confusion with trying to find it or, or not being able to find it. Is there meaning behind the word Moogatunes? Besides, <laughs> obvious, besides the tunes, because that's, that's obvious. If you don't see the tunes connection, then you should probably not be listening to this podcast right now. You should go read a textbook. But... Go check out figureitout.com. Yeah, yeah. What is what is Muga? What is that root word from? 
So this is probably a good segue into the origin story as well. But this this started as a college blog in 2015. So I went to Trinity College and had five roommates, and we were kids who like loved SoundCloud. Basically, what Cody was just describing um, would always find new songs, but we didn't have a good way to share it with each other. So the solution was a Dropbox folder, which we called No Shitty Music. That's where that comes from. Yeah, hashtag No Shitty Music. Yeah, and then. Uh, when you share this interview, hashtag no shitty music, tag Moogatoons. For sure. But uh, that turned into a Squarespace blog. Squarespace is like a website builder. And it took off at our campus. And by the time we graduated, there was, I believe, 12 writers from six different schools. So basically, what we discovered was that there are other people like us who want to be sharing this music. We started recruiting and accepting applications from kids around the country. but. Your question, the name, it's when we were transitioning from the Dropbox folder to the website, we were like, what are we going to call this thing? And one of our friends was like, well, I actually own the domain Mugatunes because it was a playoff of Mugatu from Zoolander. Oh, shit. Yeah. Um, And he just bought it because he thought it was funny. And we were like, all right, that works. Let's roll with that. And so we've since sort of gotten away from that pronunciation just for obvious copyright reasons, but also just because it's easier for everybody to uniformly call it Muga. But that's the little Easter egg on the name. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, you definitely you definitely don't want Zoolander and and Mugatu, Will Ferrell coming after you <laughs> in a lawsuit, especially if he's in character as Mugatu when he shows up to the courtroom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably do some fucked up shit. <laughs> But yeah, so to to get back on track, you mentioned that it it started as the Dropbox and you eventually transitioned to Squarespace. But before before you even decided to get the Dropbox going, what, what were some of the early conversations or experiences that you were having in college related to music? And there's always that struggle with people fighting over the ox cord. And, and I played baseball for four years down at University of Richmond. So the locker room, frat house, ox cord, wherever we were, was always like this sacred... Spiders. Yeah, it was, it was spides. It was like this sacred job, this, this, this sacred position where you would be controlling the music. And if you fucked up, you know, you were out. It was, it was ruthless. If you played forever, one bad forever. song... Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're done. You're, you're done for the day. You'll, you may get a chance tomorrow. What were some of those experience, experiences excuse me, that you were having related to music that made it apparent that something was missing? And it started as a Dropbox, eventually went into Moogatoons, and it's still evolving. But what were some of those early moments where you realized that something was missing? I think exactly what you're describing. Like it was fighting over the aux cord before, like during three games, during parties, but also just like we were all music nerds and like there wasn't an efficient way to send each other as a group stuff like i suppose we could have i think it started as like a group text but we were like then we got to scroll back up and go through all the shit talking to find the song from two weeks ago and like instead we were like, let's just put it all in one place where it's easily organized and we all have access to it whenever we want i'm joking about it but it but it is such a responsibility to be in charge of the music in college it's such a like you're you're basically influencing everyone else's mood in the room and you have to tap into that vibe what people are feeling and not only the the song but the timing is so important too like a song on a on a 
Thursday night is not going to hit the same on like a Sunday morning after a lift in the baseball locker room or in your dorm room or, or something like that. You have to feel out the vibe and kind of feed off what other people are feeling and then project that with your music. I think also, and it's something that people don't necessarily really like to own up to, but it's, it's stressful in the sense that you don't want to be embarrassed by maybe the songs that you're playing and you're always wondering kind of a little bit in the back of your head, like, is this something people are going to want to listen to? Is this something that, you know, people are going to turn around and be like, what the hell is this kid playing right now? And so having a, a space to really see where, you know, your peers and people that are in your close circle, what they're listening to, what they're vibing to, can just give you a better sense of, you know, the direction of where to take the music when you are playing it in a bigger group, as opposed to just for yourself. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. That, that definitely comes into play. I've had so many times, especially back in school where I have, I have a song queued up and then, you know, someone in the locker room says something and then I, I go to the four songs I had queued up and change them all. <laughs> I'm just like, Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Just like act like I, I wasn't about to play some shit that everyone was going to hate. But yeah, I, I just remember always trying to look around, see who was, you know, in the room or, or who's at the party, gauge people's reactions. And I actually lived for a little bit. One of the guys on our team is he started DJing back in college and he moved out to LA now. But I kind of saw firsthand how much work goes into just creating a playlist for one party, a couple hours, two, three hours, and, you know, all the all the variation and all the songs that you have to queue up and mix them together and how kind of like the same thing you're talking about the I don't know if self-conscious is the right word but trying to go with the flow and and not piss off people with your music making decisions and trying to like keep the mood and and it's kind of like a journey for the whole night I think it's also I think one of the big components to it is I've almost just started to experience this more so now I'll have people that will text me, you know, on a consistent basis, looking for new music, looking for playlists. And, you know, back in the day, I'd be like, okay, well, my lifting playlist is on Spotify or like my going out playlist is on SoundCloud, my like hanging out playlist on Apple Music and to try to direct them in, in so many different ways. It just, people kind of just lose interest. It's like, oh, well, I don't want to go onto this app and follow this and then go onto this app and follow this. It just makes it a lot easier to, to follow exactly what you're looking for. So how do you select people that become tastemakers? What factors separate the good tastemakers from the great tastemakers or people that may not even make it on to Mugatoons? I would say frequency of posting is, is what separates the good one from the great ones. There's no quota for our tastemakers. Like there's no minimum that we demand. They can use the platform as they please. We have some kids who post daily and some kids who drop in once a month. But the kids who post daily are true savants and like they get after it. And I think back to what we were just talking about, and I think this is reflected in the way the platform has progressed but to the experience that you guys were both just talking about, there's a competitive nature to it where it's like, you want to be the one who showed people this sick song. And that's part of like what got this whole thing started is we want, like you want the credit for discovering a song. And then when people listen to it again, they're like, shit, I remember when Drew showed me that. 
it honestly feels good. It's a weird feeling, but when you have people that are texting you looking for, you know, they're like, I need a new playlist for the summer that'll like get me like jacked up, or I need a new playlist for this, and they're hitting you up directly, you're like, oh shit, I actually have good taste in music finally. And like you're saying, Drew, it's when you know those songs you introduce them to someone else, it's it's like a constant reminder every time that song comes on for them that you were the one who showed that song to them. I feel like there's also a an identity component too where you see your own likes in another person or another group of people that you may not have thought liked your music. And, and that's why I love music so much too because it's the great diversifier. No matter what your skin color, religion, background, how you grew up, you can always bond with someone over a song and you can figure out who likes who likes what you like, who who dislikes what you aren't listening to, you know, what kind of decisions go into that process, how you even came across that song. I, I feel like having a community like this, it's more than just the the music, it's the connection aspect too. Cause I'm assuming if if you like a tastemaker on on Moogatoons that there's a lot of contact that goes back and forth behind the scenes, like in the in the community. Is there is there any sort of way that you guys curate conversation between tastemakers and listeners or or between tastemakers and tastemakers behind the scenes? Yeah, so we have um a Slack channel basically that has everybody in it. I talk to most of them on a daily basis. And then for each of them on the platform, they have a personal profile that obviously shows all of their past posts but also like where to reach them, like their Instagram, their socials, their SoundCloud, their Spotify, so that people can connect with them on a deeper level. I think going off of that, Zach, I know this is a little bit of a different topic, but around the same thing, it just made me think of it. Just based on where my personal, um, like real, real true love for music kind of took that next step was, um, I was at a festival a couple of years ago and I was looking around and I was like, it's crazy to think that, you know, there's 50,000 people here right now. And literally the only thing they have in common is the ticket that they use to get in. But everyone comes together for like as a community for this experience. And I think really it's that creating that experience overall and, and helping nurture those relationships with people that have the same interests, have the same tastes on this platform is, is, has been a huge stepping stone for, you know, our brand and the platform itself. Yeah, fe- festivals are are insane. I organizing something like that where, you know, an extra 50 to 100,000, sometimes close to half a million people flood a city or a remote location and they stay there for 3 days and then after that everyone clears out. So it's like you take this breath in and there's like, you know, thousands of people that are crowding the space and 99% of them get along with each other and they're all vibing out, having a good time. And then you kind of breathe out and there's, they all go back to their lives until next year when it all happens again. And yeah, the, the, whole, the whole festival dynamic seems like it kind of plays off whatever's hitting people with the playlist dynamic too. Like that, that aspect of community and coming together and just bonding over music. Like you could disagree on everything with... With uh, with politics or your your values, what, the books you read, podcasts you listen to, whatever you could you could disagree on everything. But if you like a certain song, 
you can see that people vibe out to it just by their body language or, or talking about it. And you just make all these connections in the festival atmosphere. Yeah. And I think that's reflected with our community of tastemakers too. We have kids, we have kids from high schoolers to 30 year olds from all different backgrounds, from different countries. And they all fuck with each other because they all love music. So you mentioned that you started on Squarespace. Are, are you still on Squarespace or was that just an early stage thing? So that was an early stage thing. In early 2017, we got to about 200 tastemakers. And I know that, that your website is on Squarespace because I saw that. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm interested. Yeah. So you're sort of familiar with how the back end works. But with 200 different authors and just sort of like the way... Squarespace works with blogging, it was a nightmare to manage. Not to mention that there was zero security. If we had one bad egg who wanted to go in and delete everybody else's shit, he could do so. So, so you were giving out the, the, the login information to over 200 people creating different logins? Basically, we, I think like this Squarespace has a limit of, of 10 or so actual accounts or contributors. And so we had those 10 and then distributed them accordingly. But, uh, but there's no real like permission. There are, but not in the sense of like preventing people from deleting other people's stuff and like changing stuff on the website. So obviously that was a glaring problem. And it was around the same time that the business and the vision was, was becoming more real. So we knew that we needed a custom website. And that is over my head technologically. So we raised the money and hired a firm to build sort of version 2.0. Yeah, I was going to say as a, as a non-tech guy myself, uh, I'm always interested in how people go about building out platforms like this. Do you, are you guys have a background in tech or did you outsource the, m- most of the responsibility in the tech space at least? So very limited tech stuff. Obviously, like I got very efficient with Squarespace. I can do a little HTML and CSS coding, but we needed to outsource it. And so we found a firm in Boston through some mutual friends. And one of the partners of the firm used to be the CTO of Barstool. So he was super familiar with like the media space and sort of our business model at the time. And so what they, I don't think they do this anymore, but what they used to do is for startups that they believed in the vision, they would take half equity and half cash for the project. So they did that. So they're basically investors in the company. Um, And then they helped us raise some money. So via some introductions to basically some rich old dudes around Boston and New York, we found... That's how you get it done, baby. Yeah. Those rich old dudes. Exactly. (laughs) We found five or six six guys and raised about 100,000, which mostly went to the development of the platform. Did you run into any serious pitfalls during the, the build-out? Did you go through any sort of problems that you, you thought you weren't going to be able to overcome at that stage? Because it sounds like things were getting pretty serious. And if so, how did you dig through that? How did you get back to the level, level ground? So in retrospect, there was a few issues. First of all, like we said, I'm not a technical founder. And at that time, I didn't really have anybody on my side of the table who could look at what was being built, look at the code and say like, this is good, this is bad, this is not best practice, this needs to be changed, etc. So I was very much naive and like in their hands. And 
once we finally, about a year after the platform launched, I did bring on a technical advisor and he started to poke around the code. And it, a lot of it wasn't best practice and there was a lot of issues. But at the same time, that's sort of par for the course for outsourcing. And like those are problems that you only have if you have something that, that is doing well. In the last year, we've actually worked with a different firm who fixed some of those issues. And then in the last about month and a half, we brought on our own tech partner who is going to be with us moving forward. And, and it's, it's just much easier to have somebody on the team rather than outsourcing it. Especially when, when Drew says he uh, isn't very like, knowledgeable when it comes to that stuff. Like I'm, I don't even understand like posting content on these social media platforms. So like in that regard, I have, have zero help. When you're first getting used to it, because for podcasting, I'm creating clips and cutting music, making these 30-second videos, kind of like these little bites of moments during the podcast and then posting them on social media. It takes a long time to get into the flow of something like that where it's not taking up hours of your day every time you're looking to break this content down to size and post it. I definitely went through a phase where like, I hated posting on social media for a very long time. I was like, fuck, do I really need to make clips for Instagram or Twitter? Like shit like that. So I understand it can get super involved and, and annoying at times. Yeah, definitely. But I think it's, it's especially for that type of stuff, the type of like cutting clips, editing songs. Yeah. And that's way less involved than the tech going on behind the scenes and, and website development when you're customizing it. So that's like what I'm doing is such a a small chunk. Yeah. But I think it's important to be able to like be a practitioner with that stuff so that you can think about like the best way to market it. Like it's, it's hard to be a good digital marketer if, if you can't also produce content. Yeah, exactly. Going off of the, the outsourcing, there may be a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are not heavy in, in tech, like, us, but would like to push forward ideas that they would need to outsource to either another founder or a a group of people like the the developers that you linked up with. What advice would you have to someone looking back on what you know now and what you've experienced now? What what advice would you have to someone in your position that has an idea without a substantial tech background that's looking to outsource? If the opportunity to learn how to code yourself is not available, that would be the number one advice I'd give. But obviously, for time constraints, that's not an option for most people. The next best scenario is to find a founder, like you said, somebody like who we just found to come on board and just be your guy. And that might mean that you pay them or they take equity or a little of both. But either way, they're going to be cheaper than dealing with the firm. and if they're properly incentivized, like they're going to do everything correctly and with a long-term vision in mind. If your only option is to go with the firm, I think finding a way to have somebody who's neutral, just keep an eye on what's happening under the hood is super important. A lot of these firms are doing 20 different projects at a time. They're meeting quotas. They might be cutting corners you need somebody on your side of the table to be like, hey, hey, this this isn't right. So how many campuses are you guys on right now? We've had tastemakers from over 100. And is it all US? 
No, there's been a couple in Australia, a couple in Canada, one in India, and a few oh, wow. in Europe. But the most consistent posters are in the US. So you guys are international. It's dope. <laughs> Was there a a certain moment of virality or a, something that happened where you realized that things were starting to catch on and the, and the platform was starting to spread? I mean, there's been a few. I think the first one was like the realization that there were a lot of people like us who wanted a platform like this. And so that was huge. And, and the response from reaching out to people, inviting them to post with us was so positive that, that that's when this became like a an actual MVP, if you will. I think also just seeing, you know, the people that use the platform are so invested in the brand and the company and the platform itself that, you know, seeing people that show that much interest in just any business in general, I think it it goes a long way to people like us that are, you know, behind the scenes making this stuff happen. Um, just because, you know, you're making a difference. One, two, you're you're providing a place where people can you know, develop these relationships, have this great experience. But also I think a big one for me, especially because I went to Trinity with Drew as well, was, you know, a lot of the times there would be the like the spring concerts, there would be any, some DJ coming in and just everyone in the crowd would be, you know, repping the, whether it was like the t-shirts or the stickers. Um, and, it, and it was for just because they, you know, they just associated that with, this great experience that they were having. And I think seeing something like that is, it really like changes your perspective about the the type of work that you're doing. Yeah, that's a perfect transition actually, because I was going to ask you guys how the events come into play and that, how that helps you spread the, the mission of Mugatoons. And for those who are listening, we met on the rooftop of the tea factory in Brooklyn for Sunset at the Tea Factory, I, b- I believe it was called. And it was to raise money for fuck cancer. And there are a bunch of DJs there, probably 100, 150 people more throughout the day, kept going for like seven, eight hours. How do you guys link up for, for something like that? And, and how does that help you spread Mugatoons and, and help people find out about it? I think one of the things that we started to think about and started to develop more with the brand was just that, you know, Mugatunes is more than than a brand. It's a connection. It's an experience. It's it's a way of life almost for a lot of these people that are are so devoted to finding good music and not listening to shitty music. And so, you know, we saw how passionate people were about what we were doing, about the brand, about everything going on with Mugatunes. It just it it kind of segued itself into, you know, now instead of just doing having a platform where people can listen to music, let's actually bring that experience to them, to these different campuses, to, you know, these different cities and let them experience it firsthand. And so it, it really made it easy in terms of, you know, us motivating ourselves to, to try to develop some of these live events, because we know that if we do it right, these are people that are super invested in Mugatunes and what we're doing. So having the opportunity to, you know, build this experience for them to have that's unlike any other, um, that alone is motivation to try to curate these things to make them as incredible as possible so people keep coming back and 
and people just honestly on a more basic level have you know they can they can get away from their lives for a day they can you know forget about their everyday issues they can just go have fun and and experience it for what it is it's like a double bang for your buck when you can get users to think of your platform as more of more than a platform and as a community you're getting them as a user base, but then you're also getting them as ambassadors too, because they're probably going to tag you on social media. They're probably going to tell their friends. They're probably going to show up at events like the one that I met you guys at in Brooklyn. So it's like if you can build that community aspect vibe around your product, then it's like you you have people that you aren't even paying that are going out and spreading your message. Exactly. Um, I think too, from like a more business perspective, the live events and concerts part of the business was something that for the last few years I knew like was something we needed to do and that there was a ton of opportunity there. Obviously, if you're familiar with the industry at all, all the money is in concerts. Yeah, especially now with streaming. Exactly. So this was something that like we've been thinking about for a long time. And that's actually how Cody got involved. He approached me and said, Hey, I want to throw some concerts. And that's um, how we connected. And so, I mean, Cody can talk a little bit about what we're doing this fall, but we're, we're finally getting into that space and it's super exciting. Yeah, sure. I was, I was going to bring up, we were talking about it a little before, but what, what's going on this fall? Cody mentioned that you had the, the 30 city tour coming up and that sounds insane. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah definitely. How did, so, that, how did that come about? So basically what had happened, um, just to give you a little context around the, around you know the situation, how Drew and I got involved with each other, so, you know, I was a huge supporter of movie tunes when I was in college. Me and Drew were obviously good friends in school, but I was never part of the company, like right from the get-go when they had founded it. And so when I was in Austin, I lived in Austin, Texas for two years. I was kind of in like a funky place myself, just personally. And I ended up going to Austin City Limits back-to-back weekends. And honestly, it like changed my entire life, just the experience that I had there. And, and really the event that they put on. And so when I, when I recovered from that weekend, I immediately hit Drew up and was like, dude, we got to take movie tunes to the next level. Cause I knew, I knew how big of a, like a task it would be. And I knew he wouldn't have the time to be building that stuff out while he's doing with the platform and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, I was like, I'll take on all of the live events. I'll take on, you know, planning this, this tour for the fall. So I basically spent, I would say like the last six months or so, just really taking it slow and and building this, what's we're about to announce um, in a few days is a 30 city tour. We're hitting, I'd say 75% college campuses, 25% venues in different cities along the way. And really just making sure that, you know, the pieces lined up for every single event. Um, I don't. I don't want to give too much information away because we are announcing that officially in a few days. But basically, we are starting in Syracuse, New York. Actually, no. Let me take that back. We have a launch party in Boston um, coming up in about two weeks and change, and then we head to UMass Amherst. We go up to Syracuse, New York, and then we go from there. We hit you know every school basically on the way down to down to Florida State. And from there, we go across to New Orleans, Austin, Scottsdale, Arizona. And then potentially, we're going to be adding a few extra shows at the end in LA and finish it up there. So 
it's definitely an exciting time for us. Um, I think the, in terms of the company as well, like Drew had said, from a business standpoint, this is where the, the majority of our revenue is going to be coming from. But it's also a huge opportunity to just get more brand exposure, get more loyalty from our fans across the, you know, across the country, hit some markets that we might not have as big of a following in and really develop those relationships with people in those cities, those schools, and just try to get as much exposure as possible for you know the platform itself. And so these are, for, for people listening, if you're one of, in one of these areas, I, I assume that once the launch happens, you can, you can buy tickets and, and go online, which I'll, I'll link in the description as well. But so these are parties and, and sets that are thrown by Mugatoons. Like you're not kind of you're not just adding your name onto another festival like that. Like this is the Mugatoons product. Like you're in in control. Exactly. So what I've been doing over the last six months, like I said, so we're booking artists, we're finding the perfect venues for those artists and matching also those artists up with the right cities, you know, where they have a, a huge fan following where they might have a little more pull than another city where people really want to see them and then making sure that we align those up correctly. And then, yeah, like you had said, we're going to be launching tickets for those, um, which are going to be on sale in the next few days. Oh. And so a lot of, a lot of these, these shows, we wanted to really differentiate from just your, your average concert. And we wanted to kind of create not just for a lot of these, not just, you know, one concert and then it's done and we're gone. We wanted to create, you know, a few different elements to it. And so for a lot of these schools, we are there, you know, for a Friday night and a Saturday. So we'll have a concert on Friday, let's say, with a fraternity at their house. And then on Saturday, we will maybe have it at a nightclub or at a, at a big venue. And so we teamed up with this startup block party. Sure, you want to just give a little... Just a little, you know, detailed description about Block Party and, and our partnership with them. One of the first steps in putting this together was finding a ticketing partner. Um, obviously, the big ones are like Eventbrite or, or all those sort of household names. The problem was that we don't have a reputation in this space because this is our first go. So we were lucky enough to connect with a startup based out of New York City called Block Party, and they are a ticketing app. And we are co-branding this tour together. All of our tickets will be through them. So when it does go live and it's people are trying to buy tickets, it'll be through one of their links. Um, but that was a huge partnership for us just because it checked that box. But also, they're a company in a similar position as us. And we're looking at this as a long-term partnership where we can grow together because this is not going to be a one-time thing. This is going to be at least a semesterly tour. And so we're going to need to take a new partner for as long as we do it. And I think, I think the cool thing why we decided to go with Block Party is so for people that don't know necessarily a lot into the background of Block Party. So they're the leading blockchain platform for live event ticketing. Um, and so what's cool is, is a lot of the times they create these rewards programs that incentivize people to you know, share the events, buy tickets. So let's say you're going to a concert with some of your friends. If you get your ticket, they all get their tickets. You guys might earn some tokens, which can then go towards rewards. Like, let's say either more tickets or VIP access to, you know, a table at that, at that concert. And so 
we're really trying to to cultivate these unique experiences for people, but also give them, you know, a reason to get more involved with their community and, and link up with people that have the same interests as them, same music interests, especially, and all come together in, in one space. Yeah, I like the Friday, Saturday aspect of the tour too, because that follows the college lifestyle. I, I remember I'm talking about it like I've been out of college for 20 years, like I literally graduated two years or three years ago. But um, I remember how Friday night was always on campus and then Saturday night was downtown. And that's just what we did. Like no one questioned it. You just go to the frat house or you party on campus on the Friday and then everyone gets an Ubers and headed to downtown Richmond on Saturday. So I like how you're kind of following that path. Yeah, well, I think I think uh, a cool aspect for us also is it's a huge opportunity for us to, you know, get to really see some of these schools we've never seen and get a better understanding of our fans, of people that support us and support the mission of the company and really see, you know, what's going on in their shoes also as opposed to them just, you know, it being one-sided with with them just using the platform. And so being there for, you know, a 48-hour period we'll have time to do stuff like go maybe do a, a SEC football game or go experience something on their campus as well. Um, and so it's, it's really a win-win for us moving forward this fall. Yeah. Going, going to a, uh, like a Florida state Clemson yeah. game is research yeah. and development. <laughs> Your business, business exactly. expense, that shit. <laughs> yeah. So we mentioned a little bit before how the future of streaming, it seems like it can be, extremely tough to make a profit in in this sort of space. How, how do you guys bring in the majority of your revenue? And w- what sort of different sectors do you hit in, in revenue generation? So that, I mean, you're totally right with that. That's actually a conversation that I was having with some of our investors slash advisors. In the beginning, the vision for Muga was to eventually get into the streaming platform space. But like you said, to my knowledge, there are no companies doing it that are in the green. Just the, the business model, no one has really figured out yet. Companies like SoundCloud has forever just barely kept its head above water. Spotify loses money year over year. Same with YouTube, but YouTube's owned by Google, so they don't give a shit. But basically, we've abandoned that vision and, and decided that we're going to be the curation hub for those platforms. So the business model has changed from sort of like a traditional raise around, get users, raise another round, get acquired, to operating a lot more like a record label. So we actually have an entire separate side of the company called Mooga Media, where we help artists, sometimes brands, with anything from marketing to design to promotion. And we leverage both like our digital agency type skills and Mooga Tunes' audience. Yeah, that kind of goes hand in hand with what you're doing because you're, if you're putting such a microscope onto the music and you're watching trends and seeing what artists are blowing up and following their paths, it makes sense that you should try to monetize in forms of a record label and be able to use those trends and, and, and kind of create a separate side to just the curation is what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of it which I'm starting to see on a, on an even bigger level now after going through, you know, the last half year doing this is that so much of it ties into itself where, you know, we're 
we're using this platform to stream music and we're trying to put on live events, but also we're acting as booking agents for artists and talent buyers for venues and and forming partnerships with venues to manage them directly with their booking. And there's just so many different avenues you can take it. And I think, you know, just by structuring it the correct way, it's a it's a massive opportunity in terms of, you know, increasing revenue for the company as a whole. Yeah, it's really become like an ecosystem for music. It's a good way to understand it. In terms of artists, are, are there any partnerships that you have now or any partnerships with sing, uh, artists or groups in development that you're able to talk about? So in terms of artists right now, we don't have any direct partnerships. Um, however, we are working with a lot of the same artists for this first tour around. And so we've been able to develop a great relationship with them and their manager and kind of act as, you know, the middleman for, like, I'm getting text messages now from some of these guys' managers saying, hey, is there any chance you could squeeze them in at, like, X venue that you guys have booked for another date? And I'm sitting there going, like, well, I don't manage that venue, but I guess I can, I can see and try to, and, like, reach back out. And so, you know, you almost have to try to, re- not reinvent the wheel, but you got to be able to be, like, multifunctional in the sense that, you know, the second you start developing these, these relationships with them, there's a hundred different things that, and different ways that you could spin it. Um, it really just depends on, on which way you want to go with it. But I think like Drew said, being just that, like that ecosystem, that one-stop shop, it's, it's what really separates us right now in terms of moving forward. Yeah. And I, I think that has to go, uh, it goes off a lot of that trust element, which is what I wanted to get into. With the playlists on Spotify or, or SoundCloud, you you have people that are in charge of making the playlist. Sometimes it could be just one person that's in charge of putting out music for a playlist that's followed by 2.5 million people. And you have no idea what that person is into or their kind of personality. There's no really personality behind the playlist. And, there, and there's politics that go on behind the scenes between playlists and, and record labels and, and developing relationships, and, and which, is, which is fine. That's just part of the music business. But then it's not really a, a truly crowdfunded you know, hip-hop playlist or EDM or chill. It's, it's what other people are pushing and how the person in charge is influenced by those factors. But with you guys, there's a name and a face on every playlist. People can have profiles. People can talk to one another. So, so there really is a personality behind the music. And then there is that huge trust element where you know, all right, if 2,000 people like this playlist, like I know it's got to be good because you know it's actual people liking it, not like robots streaming shit trying to get their numbers up or, or people giving money behind the scenes. Exactly. And I mean, like you said, there's a ton of sketchy stuff that's happening these days with music. If payola, if you're familiar with that concept, is alive and well, and, and it's finally coming into the mainstream where people are calling out people for... Is that the kind of like the factory robot streaming thing? I've, I've seen some videos on that, but I'm not exactly sure what payola is. Payola is um, a law that was passed, I think, in the 70s called the payola law that prevented labels from basically just paying radio stations to play their their client stuff and so that was passed and then basically the labels adapted to doing giveaways and gifts for them but today there is an entire micro economy 
underneath Spotify and SoundCloud of people paying for placement, paying for submissions. For example, we receive anywhere from 50 to 70 music submissions a day, and we charge people $2 per submission, which guarantees that we'll listen to it. So that's like a more honest way of doing it. But there's a lot of people who, with these huge playlists, are charging upwards of $10,000 a week for playlist placement. It's, uh, it's insane. Yeah, I've had some conversations off the record with some people that are involved with some of the bigger labels around NYC. And they, they were basically coming from the label side saying that no matter how big streaming gets, it, it looks like radio is always going to be king. Stre- streaming kind of dominates the coasts like New York City, LA, Chicago. But for them, radio is huge and they have such tight relationships. And I'm sure all of that gift giving or buying vacations for people at radio, like all that shit behind the scenes comes into play because they're literally paying people so much money per year to make sure that if they have a song that's being played 180 times a week on a station, that if it drops to 179, then that dude is in the radio station trying to get it back up to 180. So like, even if it drops one tick, like they're literally hiring, hiring people to get it back up. So there's going to be shady shit that comes along with that. Yeah, for sure. And in a lot of ways, I think you're right that in, in the Midwest, especially radio stations are, are more important than they are on the coast. But in my opinion, like Spotify and those platforms are the new radio and the playlists are the new radio stations. And so lab- labels are paying the people like the most influential, especially in the EDM and hip hop space. The most influential people in music, in my opinion, are people who have huge YouTube channels or huge Spotify playlists. Yeah, and it's it's crazy that that all of that power is is with one dude or one girl, whoever whoever's running the the YouTube channel. So exactly. I mean, you never. I like to think that most people are are good people and things run honestly. But once money starts to get involved and influence and power, you never know how things are going to come into play. Exactly. And like you said, that on like the, the opposite side of that, the ebbs and flows of all this stuff, we try to be as authentic and as transparent as possible. And I think that has helped us a lot with our growth. So for, for people that might look at Mugatoons, even, even, you know, maybe an investor or someone that is looking from the outside of the platform that is not directly involved yet, that thinks that, you know, this is just a niche thing. It might have caught on for a couple colleges. It's it's gonna burn out eventually. The the bigger play, someone bigger will just come in and, and kind of take this market for itself. What would you say to those people? I think that something that I always talk about is that with us, we're much more about depth than width. If if that makes sense, like we we have people who, like Cody was saying bleed for Muga and they will rep it for us and they're ambassadors for us for free. And I think that's really the biggest value in our company. And that's something that another company couldn't replicate is the strength of the brand and the community of people who are behind it. Yeah. No, the the community is such an important aspect. I I even see it. uh, it, It's a huge thing in podcasting too, which is, you know, it's both in the audio field, music and podcasting, people that like a podcast 
you know, I'm having conversations with these people, some of them complete strangers. Like some of my, a lot of my friends don't listen to my podcast, but I'll have a dude DM me if I haven't released something in a week and be like, where's the next podcast? Like, and he's some, and he's some guy in France or something that just listens to the, the podcast religiously. But it's like those, those connections that you build with people mean a lot. Acquiring true fans and people, like you said, are willing to bleed for your platform and, and do whatever they can to push it forward. Exactly. And that really is the, the new media business model. Like the companies that are winning the bar stools or the bleacher reports yeah, I'm or the YouTube channels. Yeah, I'm schmacked. <laughs> like, seriously, it's, again, we've, I've said it a few times and Drew said it, it's, you know, it's building this brand that people just connect with on a much deeper level. You know, especially like I'm schmacked is a great example. I always talk about that. You know, that's a company that two guys go start filming college parties and a few years later, it's valued at $10 million. And it's like, because their fan base is so, so loyal that they know that if they get a new fan, they're going to retain that fan forever. It's not like a, a one person comes, another one leaves. It's people that are so devoted to that brand and to the, you know, the mission and really what the company is all about. And that's what, what made that company especially so successful in that industry. Yeah, that makes me think of a bar stool, like you were saying, and and kind of whole the whole Dave Portnoy story where he was creating content after work, miserable at his job, and now it's an entire empire, and it has that community vibe where you know you could say whatever you want about Barstool. I like Barstool's content. I think they know their community extremely well, and they produce content that people in that community consume and people like and it's shareable and it goes viral. And it all started with a guy that was creating short videos and, and memes. And now millions of people see everything that Barstool posts. They have a video empire, podcast empire, like it's it's out of control. I think at least my perspective on those types of companies and even what we're doing is is what really separates, you know, the bar stools and the Amschmacks and, you know, what we're trying to build also from some of these bigger, more corporate and AI run companies. It's, it's just so real. Like everything that is done is so real and just honest, even though sometimes it's not, it's not what people, you know, necessarily think is, is appropriate, but it's so real on, on such a deeper level that people just have a, a much larger appreciation for those types of companies. You know, Amtrak wasn't out there trying to fool anyone. They it made it very clear what they were doing, what they were about, and, and people loved that about it, and they got behind it and never looked back. And so I think it's being able to create that sense of, you know, this is, this is no bullshit. This is exactly what you're getting. This is exactly what it's all about. Um, I think that's what really drives people to brands like us and like those companies as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I want to respect your guys' time as well. But to wrap up, I wanted to ask you guys, what do you see Mugatoons becoming within the next 5 to 10 years? And I know it's so hard to kind of put a pin in something and say, this is where we'll be at. But at, at this stage right now, what, what sort of marks or what sort of... Uh, steps do you see your you yourselves surpassing and Mugatoons surpassing as you take things five to ten years into the future? So I think for um 
there's sort of three pillars of the company right now. It's it's the Mooga Tunes, which is the curation, discovery, playlists, and where the music lives. There's the agency where we're helping artists grow their brand, reach new fans, and then now the experiential side of it with with actually it's it's a new sister company that we, we're going to launch the next couple of days called Mooga Live. But the goal is that that becomes all three become the trusted player in those spaces. And so Mooga Live would be the the entertainment the concert, side, just exactly. the, the concert, the experiences. You know, so people can go onto that site specifically, um, and they can see they can see recap videos, they can see upcoming events and get tickets, they can see photos from our past events, just to really, you know, separate those three branches of the company but keep them under one universal place um, under this brand that that's been built out. That's so. I'm looking forward to attending the the first Mugatoons festival. Definitely, hell yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> You could have people put up artists on the site and just have them vote for whoever they want to play, kind of like the playlist. And then you could just have a festival. It's much harder said than done. I'm literally just saying an idea that formed in my head. There's actually a uh, some Monster Energy does. It's called Up and Up, if you want to check it out after we get off. This. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But what they do is exactly that. So they put out four artists and then they have schools vote against each other for a uh, you know, a couple of weeks or like a couple of months. And then whichever the highest voting, you know, artist is, that's the artist that goes to those schools. And so it's a pretty cool concept, um, what they're doing over there. And I can definitely respect what they're doing. Um, it just, you know, it's, it's very time consuming and it's a lot of work. And I think, you know, it could be something that we could get to eventually, but, you know, right now I think we're, we're really happy with where the direction that Mugatunes is in. And, the direction of the company and, and really our brand is going. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it sounds like you guys are in pretty good shape. You have a, a 30 city tour coming up. You have three different sectors of your company. It sounds like everything is running relatively smoothly. So I would say, yeah, you guys are in a pretty good position. So one question that I usually ask each person that comes on a podcast and I'm stealing this from Tim Ferriss because I love this question so much. He's another podcaster that I listen to. Four-hour work. If you guys... What's up? Yeah, yeah four-hour work week. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Four-hour work week. Yeah, it's a must read for everybody. Yeah, it's, it's actually on my list right now. So I surprisingly haven't read it yet. I've listened to probably 40 episodes of his podcast, but I, the, I need to read that book eventually. But what I usually ask everyone that comes on is... If you had a billboard in the middle of Times Square, it was a big ass billboard, and you could put anything you wanted on that billboard, but it can't be self promo. It could be a meme, it could be a quote, it could be a video, it could be a photo, anything you want. If you could put something on that billboard for a day, what would you choose? So it can't be Mooga related. That's what you're saying. Yeah, it can't be. It can't be self promo. Oh shit, dude! <laughs> I was gonna, Drew. I was literally thinking of the three emojis. When he first started saying it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say too. We have this dream of a... Have you ever seen the the Snapchat billboards that are like the yellow with just the ghost? Yeah, yeah, I, I have seen some of those. We've always had this vision of when we have the money to do some real billboard marketing to just have the Mooga pink with three white emojis, just no shitty music, but it's like the, the cross, then the poop emoji, 
than some headphones. I like that. It's self-promo, but I'll let it fly. I'll, that's good. The emojis make it allowable. I, I want to see that up there. We, I mean, we drove, we drove past the billboard the other day, and I, we were taught, we both said it at the same time, and it was funny because we're like, "Can you imagine driving past one of these billboards and seeing the, the poop emoji, the like the no emoji, like the caution emoji, and then the headphones emoji, and that's it? Like, even if no people had no idea what it was." There's no way you could drive past that without at least being like, what in God's name is that? That's true. I guess the marker of a good advertisement is something that makes you go look it up right after. Every time I pass something that makes me go to my phone, I'm like, oh, that like I should probably take note of that. That was a good ad. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's, again, thank you guys for your time. I really do appreciate it. I know you have a lot on your plate coming up for the tour and getting everything to launch. So I am, I am very grateful for the time and, and I really enjoyed this conversation. So thanks again. Likewise, man. I think we also, you know, appreciate it because it gives us a, our days are so hectic and there's so much shit going on that it kind of gives us a second just to decompress and really think back at some of the stuff as to why we got into it and what motivates us and what's important about the company. So it's, it's equally as beneficial for us. So thank you for having us. Oh yeah. It's like, uh, sometimes I feel like it's a therapy session. Like I, I just literally just came rushed over from the office to plug in my laptop in the apartment. And it's like an hour during the day that I don't have to think about anything else besides just talking to people that do interesting things. So I totally feel that. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Augsoro Podcast with Drew and Cody of Mugatoons. You can get tickets for their block party tour right now with the link in the description of this podcast. Go slam that link for an electric show hitting 20 cities across the country. You do not want to miss this. Also, if you haven't already, leave us a quick rating on the iTunes store, write a comment, and even tell a friend about the podcast. We are a completely independent platform and rely on you, the listeners, to spread the word. Thank you so much for tuning in each week and sending us loving messages. We love what we do and every tag on social media and DM means the world to us. Until next time.